And uh, so Tuesday night is another opportunity for us to be in God's Word for the men and just come with the Bible if you're planning on coming on Tuesday night and, uh, and uh, um, for the men's study. All right, Psalm 64, if you'll turn there. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Jerry's got a couple that he'd love to just give to you if you want to follow God's Word with us tonight. Psalm 64, as we're journeying through the book of Psalms. At a little slower pace than I thought we would, but that's okay. I think the study has been very rich and beneficial and uh, very much of a blessing. So Psalm 64 is where we're going to begin tonight and see how far the Lord takes us tonight. As Father, we do right now desire to open up our hearts to you. And Lord, these Psalms are very rich for us, and they were written and inspired by God um, for our benefit. And Lord, knowing that we too can uh, cry out to you. We can uh, stand on your promises that we can be uplifted and encouraged in the words that are written here. And Lord, I just pray that we would be still in our seats, that we would remember that our phones need to be off or on you know, silence, um, because Lord, we want to hear from you, and we want to be um, still before you, and we want to have our hearts ready to be taught by you. So we give you this time. We ask that you would bless it tremendously, every heart that's here. I, I thank you for all the kids that are here upstairs in their rooms, uh, the youth kids, bless them, uh, the kids in these rooms, these rooms full of kids, those out in the coffee shop, those that are listening, live stream. We thank you that we can gather here and right now just be attentive to you as you teach us as we go through the word. Uh, teach us by your Holy Spirit, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We went through Psalms 61 through 63 last week, and if you're with us in that study, you recall that we talked about that those Psalms were written during the time that uh, David was experiencing a rebellion that came from his son Absalom. 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18 tell us the story, and, and really the story uh, includes much of 2 Samuel because it was Absalom that was very bitter at his father, and it was all because of a family situation that happened with his sister Tamar, and, and he was bitter at his father David because David didn't really seem to the, to handle the situation well. He didn't deal with the problem, and uh, it was Absalom that took matters into his own hands and actually uh, was cast away for a couple years away from David and, and ended up coming back to Jerusalem. His father wouldn't see him, so there was a, a lot of bitterness that Absalom had, a, a lot of anger towards his father. And, and so Absalom led this rebellion against his father David. And remember that Absalom for a few years was plotting and he was planning and he was scheming. And as he was doing that, he was uh, presenting himself to the people in a way that I really care. My father doesn't care. And he would have Ahithophel, David's trusted advisor, side with him. And eventually they would lead this, this rebellion against David. As in 2 Samuel 15, it tells us, that Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And David, choosing not to go to war in Jerusalem, would take himself and, and he would take his mighty men and they would go out into the wilderness rather than having war there in Jerusalem. And it was Absalom that plotted and planning to, to kill his father and, and desired to do that. And, and David, so as he's writing these songs, because as we go 
into Psalm 64. This psalm also is written out of that event of David out in the wilderness and, and experiencing this rebellion. And sometimes as, as we've gone through the psalms, and as I told you that 150 psalms in the book of Psalms, uh, nearly half of them have David's name written uh, and attributed to these psalms, 73 of them. Probably more psalms were written by David that don't have his name. So he, he wrote half of these psalms in this book. And what we have seen many of them so far is that David is writing these psalms during that time of rebellion that his son uh, had led against him. And is David not only uncertain uh, of what's going to happen to him, whether he would ever return to Jerusalem and, and sit on the throne once again. He knows that there are the men of Israel that want to kill him. Uh, but he's also writing in the perspective of he's a brokenhearted father that's dealing with this rebellion from his son. And, and he is full of sorrow and grief because of it. So David, he writes during this time in Psalm 64, just as we saw last week, the three Psalms. And he would write many of the Psalms during that time that early in his life, in his adult life, when it was Samuel, the, the prophet that came and anointed him as the new king. But Saul was sitting on the throne and Saul persecuted David and pursued him in the wilderness. And you might think that David was one that it seems like, boy, over and over and over again, he's crying out to the Lord. And it seems like that he just has one problem after another, after another, after another. And when you look at David's life, yes, he was a mighty warrior. He was one that, that would, uh, you know, go against giants and, and he would defeat nations. And, and he was one that was the, the greatest king that Israel ever had. But David also had many days of difficulties and trials and challenges and hard times and losses. And what we see in the Psalms that I learned from is that David in all through his life would cry out to the Lord over and over and over again. Doesn't it seem like sometimes in our own lives that it's one trial perhaps after another after another and it seems like we can be done with one challenge or one difficulty or, or one disappointment or whatever it might be. And, and we get done with it and all of a sudden another comes along, doesn't it? And sometimes life is that way. But one thing that we can learn from the Psalms here is that we're to cry out to the Lord each and every time. You see, the tendency can be for us is that we begin to drift away from the Lord. I've talked to Christians who have gone through such difficulties and hardships and a season of, of, of sorrow and challenges and trials and tribulations. And what happens over time is they begin to lose their trust in the Lord, their, their rest in the promises of God. And they begin to seek the uh, solutions and, and do things in their own understanding rather than continuing to cry out to the Lord and trust in Him. And what happens is they draw away from the Lord, and that's what the enemy wants you to do. He wants to discourage you to the point where you come in your heart and in your mind and you say, you know what, Lord, I don't know. What good does it do to pray? What good does it do to read your word? What good does it do to be in fellowship with other believers? But we can learn from David the importance in his life that he cried out to the Lord and he would be near to the Lord and he trusted in the Lord all the days of his life. That's why he was called a man after God's own heart. 
And it is James that wrote in his epistle that as we draw near to him, he promises that he will draw near to us, won't he? And that's a promise that we have that we can hold on to and, and stand on and rest in. So David here, writing during this time, once again crying out to the Lord as, as we open up Psalm 64, that hear my voice, O God, in my meditation, verse 1, and preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Interesting that David, he was one that had fear from the enemy. I mean, he has a whole nation that's coming against him. Remember the advice that Hushai gave to Absalom, and Hushai said, you know what you need to do, Absalom, because Absalom was wondering, how do I go after my, David, or my father David? How do I pursue him? He's a mighty warrior. And Ahithophel said, let me go after him with a few choice men, and we'll pursue him tonight. And then Hushai, he came along and he said, no, 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 no. Uh, David's like a bear with cubs. What you need to do is gather all the men of Israel from uh, the, you know, up north in Dan to Beersheba down south. And that's the advice that Absalom went with. And he knew that a whole nation was going to be coming at him. And he says, preserve my life of fear from the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity. You know, there are times when it becomes overwhelming in our life. And it may not just be because of people coming against us, but just the circumstances that we face. And we end up becoming fearful. We end up having a lot of uncertainty and anxiety in our lives. We can experience that. So what David is praying for here is, first of all, he's seeking for God's protection. Because the enemy comes against us, doesn't he? And the enemy comes against us trying to draw us away from the Lord, as I mentioned. He, he comes to discourage us. He, he throws the fiery darts at us. One of the things that we're going to see as we continue in the book of Ephesians, when we get to chapter 6 in a few weeks, that we're told to put on the whole armor of God because we wrestle against principality and powers. We're in this spiritual war that we all face. And this life, as most of you know, is not a playground, is it? It's a battleground. And it can be very difficult. And David is at a point in his life where he's fearful. So he's praying for God's protection, seeking God's protection as the enemy was coming against him. And that's something that you and I can do, always knowing, as we've seen in the Psalms, that we can go to him. And as he would write, David, that I will abide under the tabernacle of your wings, Lord. I will trust in the shelter of your wings a place of protection and, and knowing that God is there with us. And so here is he, he continues to cry out, verse 3, those, those who are coming against me, that hide me in the secret plots, they're plotting against David, these, these men of Israel and Absalom, who sharpen their tongues like a sword, uh, verse 3, who bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words, that they might shoot in secret that the blameless suddenly they shoot at him, who do not fear. They encourage themselves in an evil, evil manner. They talk of lying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise iniquities. They have perfected a shrewd scheme. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. David knows what it is that he's facing here. So not only is he crying out for God's protection, but he's also crying out for God's wisdom. As the enemy plots here, David knew that the enemy plots, and they do it in secret. And, and I want us to notice in verse 3, as they were plotting against David, they sharpen their tongues like a sword. They bend their bows to shoot their arrows, bitter words. 
You see, Absalom and Ahithophel were very bitter towards David, as I explained that to you. They were angry towards bitter. Uh, David. And, and that bitterness had grown over the years. It, it had grown like cancer in them. And you see, one of the things that we're going to talk about on Sunday in Ephesians chapter 4 is that we're going to be told that as we are to walk worthy of the calling in which we are called, that we're to put on the new man, that you and I, as we come to Jesus Christ, all things become new, don't they? We're a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. We're to put off the old man. No more going after the former things uh, of the world and the lust and the greed and all of that. We're to put it off. And you see, here's the key for you and for me as a Christian. It isn't that Jesus is just added to our life. He is our life. He is our life. And we're new because we're born again by the Spirit of God. We're a new person, a new creation. There's transformation that takes place. And so the old stuff, just put it away, he says, and put on the new man. It has the, the meaning of putting on a whole new set of clothes as we're clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says that let all you know, malice and Bitterness and wrath and clamor, that is when you're arguing and, and getting heated discussions, all that. He says, put it away. Put it off. Don't have anything to do with it. And the thing about anger is, and the thing about bitterness is that it does grow and it leads to wrath. And it leads to malice where you're just kind of stewing about it. And that's what these guys did for these years. And finally, as it says here, that they talk of lying snares secretly. They say, who will see them? They devise. If you have a King James, I, I believe it reads that they search iniquities. In other words, they're looking for all the faults that they can find uh, on David. They're researching him as much as I can. They search, doing a Google search on David, you know. Trying to find out all the information, Google. It can be helpful, but be careful, folks. And here, as they were looking for anything, you know what dad did, Absalom? He didn't handle the situation with my sister, and I had to take matters into my own hands. And then he banishes me, and then he won't talk to me when I come back, he won't have anything to do with me. And I should be in line to be the king anyway. And, and Ahithophel, yeah. And you know what he did to my granddaughter. And they're just, I just picture they're feeding on each other. And they're searching for all the faults, you know. David this and David that. Isn't it hard when you're on that end? And perhaps you happen to some degree. When there are those at work or maybe family members that they're, they're searching for iniquity, trying to find fault with you in any way that they can. Just shooting those arrows of bitter words is what they're doing. And that's what was happening as they sharpened their tongues like a sword. We know what the Scripture has to say, don't we, about words. And that's one of the things, again, that we'll see on Sunday as the Apostle says, put those things away. And don't be given over to wrath, you know, and what you're to do is speak no corrupt word that comes out of your mouth. You see, words do do a lot of damage, don't they? And as James says in his epistle, this six ounces of muscle that's in our mouth can do damage like a wildfire, like a horse that's out of control. And we can say things and do things 
and those bitter words and arrows being shot is just showing what's in our hearts. Because Jesus said what? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth indicates what's in your heart. And when we're speaking words of anger and bitterness and, and trying to hurt people, it shows where our heart is at. It shows the bitterness and the anger and the malice that is there. And that's why we have the imperative that we are to forgive others. And forgiveness can be a very difficult thing, as I've mentioned to you. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things that God has called us to do, especially when we feel like that we've been done wrong. But the Lord wants us to forgive because it begins to, that bitterness and anger, to spread and grow. And we need the Lord to help us to forgive and to be ones that we're speaking words of encouragement, that we don't let that bitterness grow and continue to consume us because it will, and it begins to affect you spiritually emotionally, and eventually down the line, I think it begins to affect you physically. There's a, a um, in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I was looking at it this afternoon, Deuteronomy chapter 20 has some guidelines to when the children of Israel went into the promised land. And the Lord said, when you go into the promised land, here's some guidelines for war, for warfare. When you take over a city, you're, and when you begin to cut down the trees to begin to build or whatever you need the wood for, make sure that you don't take an axe against a tree that produces fruit because that fruit can be very beneficial to you and be helpful to you. So don't cut down those trees that bear fruit because they're food to you. You know, what we need to do is we need to be careful that we don't take our axes and start wheeling against those brothers and sisters in the Lord that can be beneficial to us and helpful to us, that are producing fruit, and so easily we can do that. We have jealousies and weirdness, and, you know, we, we don't like them and all of this. And I pray that we would be careful, that we wouldn't be about that, and that we would be ones that we would really, again, that we'd be tenderhearted towards each other and forgiving and and showing loving kindness towards one another. That's what we are commanded to do. It's not a suggestion. And we can't do it in our own energy, in our own flesh. We need the help of the Lord to work that in us, to work His love through us, don't we? And so we're told to do that and hear these, these, these words of bitterness thrown at David. You know, I, also I was thinking of this, that you know the last miracle that Jesus performed before he went to the cross was what? There in the garden. Remember Peter? They came to arrest Jesus, and he pulled out his little sword, and he got Malchus's ear, and plop went down the ear, and Jesus picked it up and put it back you know, on the side of Malchus and healed him. It's a good thing he did, because Peter would have been arrested if Jesus didn't do that. He would have been in big trouble. Perhaps there could have been four crosses up there, on Calvary the next day, with Peter being on one of them. And it was Jesus that said, Peter, put your sword away. Peter, who was so determined that he's going to take a sword and defend Jesus and stuff, the Word of God is, is alive and powerful and like a two-edged sword. And we can even, without having a, a speech season with grace, we can take the Word of God and begin to chop on people and chopping ears off and 
I know that I've done that before, being all harsh and, you know, being all, uh, you know, difficult and, and being coming down hard on people. And that's why, as we discuss in chapter 4 of Ephesians, that Paul says, listen, you're to grow to spiritual maturity. And that is you speak the truth in love, right? You speak the truth. We don't compromise the truth, but you speak it in love. There needs to be a right spirit because truth without love is, can be brutal. We take out our sword, and we begin to swing it, and, and we begin to chop off ears. And the Lord oftentimes will say, and I know that he said it to me at one time in a season early in my ministry, I thought, I'm going to be tough, and I'm going to come down on people, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to really show them, and chop, 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 I went. And plop, 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 went the ears. And I remember one night that the Lord said, put the sword away. And you need to be speaking the truth in love, not in arrogance and pride, but in love. You see, truth with, with, you know, love without truth is flaky. So there's a balance. Jesus was in perfect harmony of truth and grace and love. So here he's facing all of this, and they've perfected a shrewd scheme. They had been scheming to come against David for so long. Both the inward thought and the heart of men are deep in verse 7. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded, so he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear in verse 9 and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. So not only was he seeking the Lord's protection, secondly, you can write in your margins, seeking the Lord's wisdom in verses 3 through 6, but verses 7 and 8, that he was seeking the Lord's victory. It's all going to come back on them. And, and whatever situation that you find yourself in, that know this, that no one's getting away with anything, all right? And the Lord sees you, and the way that you are to react is in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. You're not to sin. You're not to take matters into your own hands. You can't be vengeful. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And the reason he says that is because we can't handle it. And we're to trust in him. And we're to do what is right before the Lord. And it'll all come back on them, as we know. Galatians tells us that don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, so shall he reap, right? That if you sow seeds to the Spirit, of the Spirit, you'll reap everlasting life. If you sow seeds to the flesh, that is, I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to be vengeful. I'm going to be bitter. I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be full of malice. You're going to reap a crop in your life and in your heart of corruption. And that's for every single one of us. And then as we continue, as verse 9, that all men shall fear again and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider his doing. And the righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. So not only does David seek his protection and seek the Lord's wisdom, he sought the Lord's victory, but he's also seeking to glorify him. And in our lives, just as we sang tonight, that may it be whatever we face and whatever situation that we're in, that we always seek to glorify the Lord. I want to glorify you, Lord. And I want to be a witness of the reality of the Lord in my life and how I react and what I do and how I respond. So David here in very difficult circumstances, continuing to cry out to the Lord, may we, listen, always cry out to the Lord. Don't withdraw from the Lord. That's what the enemy wants you to do. 
The enemy wants you to curl up in a corner and just quit in life. Don't quit. But you keep going to the Lord over and over and over again, and he hears you. And you're going to see as you wait on him and as you trust in him that he's going to work on your behalf. So don't quit. Don't withdraw from the Lord. Draw close to him, and he will draw close to you. Well, in Psalm 65, this is a song of David, a a song as we continue here. Praise is awaiting you, O God in Zion, and to you the vow shall be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come. Iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. Psalm 65, he's praising the Lord here, David, and we will see that the next couple psalms are psalms of praises for the blessings. Um, he acknowledges David here and the other psalmists, their dependence and their need for the Lord. And I like the way that, that David opens up. He says, praise is awaiting you, O God, in Zion. Praise is awaiting you. It's like he's saying, I can't wait to, to worship you, Lord. It's, it's awaiting you. You see, when we get up and start our day, do we have that heart that praise is awaiting you, Lord? I'm going to start my day with you, coming to you and praising you, being thankful to you. When we come into this place, is praise awaiting him from you, from your heart? Praise was a very important part of David's life. And we see that he's already said that I awaken the dawn as he was expressing praise to the Lord. Not that the dawn was awakening him, but I awakened the dawn, and the praise is awaiting you, Lord. He was a, a man that just desired to worship the Lord and look for that opportunity. I am ready to praise you. And may we have that same heart. I pray that we never, as we worship the Lord corporately, that we would come in and, you know, just worship, and we got five songs, and we just go through it. No, praise is awaiting that we would be anxious to get in here and get seated and get settled and, and begin to worship the Lord. What a special and awesome and incredible opportunity and privilege that we have, isn't it? To come and worship the Lord. You see, the world doesn't have that. But you and I do. And we have great reason to worship the Lord. Great reason in our lives to say, praise is awaiting you, Lord. And we're going to see that this psalm here is going to be praising God for the greatness of God and what he has done. But also, as we go through the psalm, rabbinical scholars and Bible interpreters will tell us that this psalm has prophetic implications, and we're going to see that as we go through it. So praise is awaiting you in Zion. Zion is another name for Jerusalem. To you the vow shall be performed. You who hear prayer, to you all flesh will come again. As I've read, iniquities prevail against me. We're all sinners. Every single one of us fail. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. Every single one of us, it's prevailed against us. But you will provide atonement for them. David is looking forward to the time when the Messiah is going to come and he's going to make atonement for sin, which he did 2,000 years ago on that cross. 
And as Jesus was on that cross, all of our sins and iniquities and wickedness and transgressions were placed upon Jesus, and he died and made atonement. He made atonement. He died for you and for me. He redeemed us. He purchased us. He made propitiation, which means the satisfaction that a righteous God demands upon the penalty of sin was all upon Jesus. And on that cross, he said, it is finished. I've died for your sins, iniquities, transgressions. And you are forgiven as we come in faith to him. That's reason to have praise awaiting, isn't it? We're forgiven people. The greatest need, listen, that any man, any woman has is to be forgiven. Forgiveness of sin, which Jesus has provided. And to surrender to Jesus and know that he's the only source of salvation. He's the only sacrifice for sin, as the writer of Hebrews says. So David knew that his forgiveness was by the Lord. And blessed is the man you chose and caused to approach you, that he may dwell in your courts. Verse 4, and we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, of your holy temple, Remember Ephesians chapter 1, the spiritual blessings that he chose us before the foundations of the world. I don't know why he chose me. I don't know if I would have chose me. But he chose me out of his love and goodness and grace. He chose me before I was even created, before the world was even created, which proves that he didn't choose me because he looked down and he said, Huh, Jeff, you really got your act together. You're very, very special hmm, I think that you're worthy to be chosen. It isn't like, you know, we're going to choose, you know, a spouse. So we're going to choose, you know, who's going to be on my team for soccer, you know. Remember elementary school? It isn't that way. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He looked down through history and he saw you and said, I'm going to send my son to die for you. And for those of us who have responded to the invitation, because I don't understand it all. Yes, he chose us, but we also have a choice. We're talking about the sovereignty of God. But I know this, that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me and demonstrated his love for me, Romans chapter 5. And how happy is the man whom he chooses. How happy you and I should be and blessed. Praise awaiting as we know that the Lord has made atonement for our sins and we belong to him. He's going to perform the vow. Now, the prophetic implication here is he's talking about Zion, that Jerusalem one day is going to be a place where the Lord's going to rule and reign from. We know that Jesus Christ is going to come back. He promised he would come back. And when he comes back, that he's going to come back to his holy temple. David's writing about that we shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, your holy temple. David's writing this before the first temple was even built. You see, his son Solomon would build the temple. And as we read the temple in the scriptures, most of you know, as we've been going through the scriptures, there's four temples mentioned in the scriptures. The first temple built by David's son, Solomon. It was a magnificent temple, overlaid with gold. You see pictures of Jerusalem, of the Temple Mount with the golden dome, the Dome of the Rock. That's a Muslim uh, uh, structure there and mosque. Well, Solomon's temple 
was taller than that Dome of the Rock. It was three times taller and overlaid with gold. And there are sources that say when the sun came up and reflected off the gold, it could be seen 100 miles away. That's how magnificent it was. And that temple would stand for about 400 years, and it was destroyed by who? You guys are killing me. By who? We've been through this. By who? Babylon, right? 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar with his mighty army. He comes into Jerusalem. It's the third siege against Jerusalem. He comes in and destroys the magnificent temple of Solomon. The city lays in rubble. They've gone into captivity for 70 years, right? During the 70 years of captivity, what took place? The Medo-Persians come in. They rule over the Babylonians, take over them. And then Cyrus, the king of Persia, says that you guys can go back and rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, the civil leader, Joshua, the, the high priest, they come back with a small remnant of people. They clear off the rubble. They build the altar there. And then they begin to build the temple. The temple, second temple, modest building. Nothing grand like Solomon's temple at all. It was built and completed in 516 B.C. That temple would stand for uh, almost 600 years. As it would be destroyed in 70 A.D., it would stand during the time of Christ. So when, when you read about that Jesus was at the temple, that's the second temple, right? It was expanded by Herod the Great. He was called the Great because he was a great builder, not because he was a great guy. He was a horrible man. He's the one that made the decree, put to death all the male children two years and under in Bethlehem because it was the Magi that came from the east understanding the prophecies of Daniel, that we've come to worship the king. He, he's been born. Where is he? The religious leaders tell Herod, oh, he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. And so here are this group of magi. We see the Christmas scenes as three wise men. We don't know how many it was. It's wise men, plural. Could have been two. It could have been 200. I think it was a fairly large contingency of wise men because they got the attention of Herod. Where is he? When you find him, tell me. And the wise men didn't. They came and they worshiped Jesus. They're in Bethlehem. They would leave. And then he made that decree. But he was called the great because he was a great builder. He expanded the temple mount and he built this magnificent temple with huge stones. You can still see the remnants of some of those stones, Herodian stones. Absolutely amazing, the architecture. That temple was destroyed, 70 AD, by who? Rome. The Romans came in. So there hasn't been a temple for 2,000 years. So you say, where's the third and fourth temple? Well, the third temple is going to be the tribulation temple. We know that it will stand during the tribulation period, that seven years of wrath, that Jesus uh, will come back at the end of that seven years. But in that seven years of tribulation, or more formally called Daniel's 70th week, that we know that a temple will be standing in Jerusalem. Actually, they have been building that temple already. 
You say, what do you mean, Pastor Jeff? I haven't read any news articles about the temple being built. You see, there's a place. If you go to Jerusalem today, if you go with us, the next time that we go, Lord willing, that we'll go to a place called the Temple Institute, and we'll go in and they'll show you how they've made the furnishings, the shoe bread table. There's a seven-branch menorah there in the old city of Jerusalem under protective glass that you can go and look at. There's the, the altar of incense, and they're making the priestly garments. They're training priests to do the sacrifices, and just like it was, as you read, with Zerubbabel, that they cleared off the rubble, and they began to do sacrifices even before the temple was built because the sacrifices was done where? In the outer courtyard. And it's amazing when you go and you talk to them at the Temple Institute, they say, we're all ready to do sacrifices. We don't need a temple for that. We're just waiting for the orders to have a place to be able to do that. And they believe it's up on the Temple Mount. The Antichrist, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, will come along and he will make a peace treaty with Israel that will last for seven years. And it will enable them to rebuild that temple called the Tribulation Temple that is yet future. And the Antichrist will go into that rebuilt temple halfway through that seven-year period, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he will set up an image of himself. He's going to be a world economic leader, a world political leader, a world military leader. He's going to be a world religious leader. And he's going to command the world to worship him. And it's at that time that we hear of Jacob's trouble. There's going to be great tribulation that's going to take place. Well, Jesus will come back. We'll come back with him at the end of the tribulation period. He will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And it's interesting here. By awesome deeds, verse 5, in righteousness, you will answer us, O God of our salvation. Uh, you who are confident of the ends of the earth and of the far-off seas. David, he's saying, you're not just the God that rules in Israel. You're the God that rules in all of the ends of the earth. Verse 5, if you have a King James, it might read, by terrible things in righteousness you will answer us. The King James language, there are some words that don't mean what we think they mean. So the new King James has it, the awesome deeds in righteousness, because I know I'll probably get asked that. So the old King James, once in a while, there's a couple words that meant something back then that doesn't mean today, and that can happen. Um, I remember just a couple uh, months ago after a Sunday morning service, a, a young guy came up to me and he said, Pastor Jeff, that, that teaching that you gave this morning, that was really sick. And I thought, what? He said, that teaching you did, man, that was just totally sick. And I, I said, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll do better next time. <laughs> he said, no, it was, I really liked it. Apparently, that's what it means. <laughs> sick means good, great, all right? So, who established the mountains by his strength, verse 6, being clothed with power, the second coming of Jesus Christ. You who still the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples. They also who dwell in the farthest parts afraid of your signs. You make the outgoings of the mornings and evenings rejoice. When the Lord comes back, verse 9, you visit the earth and the water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its ridges abundantly. You settle its 
furrows and you make it soft with showers. You bless it with growth. When the Lord comes back, we will be in his holy temple. Come to it. Verse 4 tells us, Zechariah chapter 14 tells us that all the nations, when Jesus comes back literally, physically to this earth, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives, which is east of where the tribulation temple was, where uh, the other two temples stood. And, and the mountain will heave in half, is what Zechariah tells us. It's very interesting that 40 years ago that they discovered that there's a major fault that runs right through the middle of the Mount of Olives. It's also interesting that those who want to build on the Mount of Olives have a very difficult time in having insurers, you know, in, you know give them insurance, no-fault insurance uh, they can't get. So are you still with me? <laughs> and, but it's true. They have a hard time getting insurance because there's a major fault that runs. So you don't, there's a hotel there too. You don't want to stay in that hotel. Um, but the mountain will heave in half, and then Ezekiel talks about, and Isaiah does as well, that the topography is going to change. There, there's going to be a river of God that will flow over to the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea about 30 miles away, the lowest point on the face of the earth, the Dead Sea in the Negev Desert. Nothing grows around it. Nothing is alive in the Dead Sea, completely dead. And that river will flow to the Dead Sea, and it will be teeming with fish. And the topography is going to change. And the land's going to blossom. And, and, and here, the river of God is full of water. And they're going to have abundance of crops and vineyards, as Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah talks about. During the reign of Jesus Christ, half of the river will flow to the Mediterranean Sea. We know that in that Millennium reign of Jesus Christ that Revelation chapter 20 talks about where he comes and rules and reigns for a thousand years. And guess what? You and I as believers, we get to rule and reign with him. You're going to be given responsibilities. That's our future. It's not a fairy tale. And when the Lord rules and reigns, the nations will come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. There's going to be a fourth temple. The fourth one mentioned in the, in the scriptures is the Millennium Temple, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be spectacular, described to us in Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. But what is also interesting is the river of God is described to us as well there in Ezekiel chapter 47. And Ezekiel was told to go stand in the river of God, and he stands in his ankle deep. And then he's told to go a thousand cubits. It's about 1,500 feet. And as he would go there, he would stand in the water, and it was knee-deep. Go another 1,000 cubits. And as he would go another 1,000, it was waist-deep. Go another 1,000, and he ended up swimming in the river of God. So let me ask us all a question tonight. How deep do you want to go with the Lord? And I think there's a lot of Christians that they're saved and they're forgiven. But in their journey in life, that they only go ankle deep. And they miss out on so much. And what my prayer is, Lord, I want to be submerged in your love and in your promises and what you have for me. 
I want to, to come to you, the living waters, and I know that as I do, that out of flowing out of my outer Moses, Jesus said, will be rivers and torrents of living water coming from me. I don't want to just go ankle deep or knee deep. I want to be fully submerged in the things of God, completely surrendered to him. And one of the things that, if any of you were listening to Calvary Life, that Pastor Ed made a point that I really agree with. You see, what is taught in the church today is how we're to have balance in our life. You know what? I want to teach you to be completely surrendered to Christ. That's what is scriptural. That as you make him the priority of every area of your life, as you make him the priority when it comes to what it is you do vocationally, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to raising your children, when it comes to whatever it is that you enjoy doing, when it comes to anything in your life, every single area of your life, that, Lord, you are the one, that you're the priority. Because balance, you'll never find it. You'll have too much of this and too little of that. You'll be happy one day, you'll be frustrated the next day. But a life that is surrendered completely, that I'm going to submerge myself as I journey through life, I want to be swimming in the things of God. I, I want to be submerged in the love of the Lord, that you're going to be able to enjoy things in life and experience that abundant life that he has for you. So there's going to be all kinds of changes. It's going to be wonderful the landscape's going to change. I also like verse 8. You make the outgoings of the morning and evening rejoice. You know, no more grumbling. No more, uh, it's Sunday evening. I got to go to work tomorrow. No more Monday morning. I got to go to work. Just kind of blah. Don't want to be there but it's going to be rejoicing every single day in the mornings and in the evenings. It's going to be wonderful. You crown the year with your goodness, verse 11. Matter of fact, just a little side note, that the Jews read this psalm every new year because of this verse. And your past drip with abundance. They drop on the pastures of the wilderness. And the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered with grain. They shout for joy and they also sing Psalm 65. Do I dare do Psalm 66? Why not? To the chief musician, a psalm, a song. We won't be long. Psalm 66, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you and all the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you they shall sing praises to your name shallah that meditation that pause think about this think of the mighty works of god as the psalmist again here is just praising god for his awesome works his awesome power god has worked on our behalf hasn't he and the greatest work is you a life that's been changed a life that has been changed Saved and forgiven. That's the greatest miracle of all. 
Remember the disciples in, in Luke's gospel, they, the 70 went out and they came back to Jesus and they said, we did all these mighty works. We cast out demons and, and you know, did these things and even raised the dead. And they were all excited. You can understand why they're excited. And, and Jesus said, really? He said, this is what you're to rejoice in. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <laughs> That's what you're to rejoice in and be excited about. Because that's the greatest work of all, is a changed life. And people get to look at you and see the awesome works of God. Do they see the reality of Jesus Christ in your life? And in verse 5, come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. And there we will rejoice in him. He rules by his power forever. His eyes observe the nations. And do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. When Moses came to Pharaoh... And Moses, you know, said, Thus saith the Lord, let my people go. And it was Pharaoh that said, No, I'm not going to let them go. Matter of fact, I'm going to put the burdens on them. Even greater. No straw. Moses was, you know, kind of perplexed and confused and frustrated. And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, I'm going to bring Pharaoh down. Uh, Don't worry. And he's going to know that I am the Lord. And the other nations, they're going to see that I am the Lord as well. So it is later on that, of course, they would leave as the plagues came down upon Egypt. You know the story in the book of Exodus. They would leave. They are backed up against the Red Sea. The Egyptians are coming after them. And God parts the Red Sea, and they cross on dry land. And then when the Egyptians pursued them, it drowned the Egyptian army. The waters receded. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness. They come into the promised land. They, they cross the Jordan. The first battle is Jericho, isn't it? And as they were to go against Jericho, they send the spies in, and there's Rahab, the harlot, that hides the spies. And what does she say? She says, I know that your God is real, that he is truly God, because we heard about how he parted the Red Sea and he drowned the Egyptians. We heard about that 40 years ago. I know that God has given you this land. And she turned in faith and believed in the Lord. And it would be 400 years after that. Fast forward, the end of the days of the judges. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, they go to battle against the Philistines, and, and the children of Israel get defeated, and somebody comes up with this bright idea, well, why don't we get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it out, and it will defeat them. So they bring the Ark of the Covenant out. There's a great shout. The Philistines hear it, and they said, uh-oh, we're in big trouble because their God is the one that defeated the Egyptians. They had heard of the marvelous work of God. And 400 years later, they still talked about it. They will know the nations that I truly am the Lord. It is interesting, fast forward to the future, we talk about Ezekiel 40 through 48, the millennium reign of Jesus Christ. Before that happens, perhaps the next major war in the Middle East, Ezekiel 38 and 39, where we're going to see a confederation of nations led by Russia and Iran and Turkey that are going to come into Israel. We've talked about it in our studies It could be that that war is being set up right now. Those alliances are coming together very clearly. Tension is is mounting. 
We saw that is in the previous psalm here talking about the nations and, and the tumults of the people. Jesus talked about the perplexity of nations. Nations don't know what to do in the last days. They don't have the answers. We see that today, don't we? And when Jesus intervenes in that war, the Lord, and destroys those armies, we don't have time to go into it. But at the end of Ezekiel 39, it says that they may know that I am the Lord. The awesome works of God. Yet there is rebellion that is still there. But my hope and prayer that they would see the awesome work that God has done in your life, a changed heart and a changed life, I believe is the greatest testimony to a lot of people that are confused, to a lot of people that are wondering, to a lot of people that are perplexed. What's going to happen next? What's my future? What's the future for my children? You and I as Christians, we have a wonderful, wonderful future. Those of the world... It's terrible. It's going to be death and devastation and destruction. Not because I said so, because the Bible says so. So praise is awaiting us, right? And we are indeed blessed. And as you go out of this place, and we'll stop there and we'll pick it up here next week, that your testimony and your witness that they may know that he is the Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these passages. And, Lord, just looking at the psalmist, they had such insight. Of course, all of this is inspired by you. And, Father, I pray that as we read this, that, that it would encourage us knowing that we can cry out to you whenever that we face those seasons of difficulties and challenges and loss and, and hard times that you're the one that's our protector. You're the one that gives us wisdom. You're the one that seeks to guide us and direct us. And we can trust in you. And praise awaits us because we are a forgiven people. And I do want to pray if there's anyone watching on live stream or in this building that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ that Jesus came to this world to die for you because all of us have been overcome with sin and iniquity. All of us have sinned. None of us are perfect. And the problem is that the wages of sin is death, spiritual death. And God, who loves us so much, sent his son to die for us on that cross. Jesus, the son of God who lived a perfect life, He went to the cross and he shed his blood. He went through such sufferings for us so that we can have forgiveness of sin. He cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And then he was put into a tomb and the tomb is empty. He's alive. He is our salvation. He is our source of forgiveness. He is our hope. There is none other. So if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, do it tonight. He loves you. And salvation comes by faith in him, putting your faith and trust in him, turning to him and saying, 
I'm not going to live any more, any longer the way I was. And I now surrender my life to you and I put my trust in you for forgiveness of sin and salvation and to come into right relationship with the Father. I need you, Lord. All of us needs him. He's the author of eternal life. Will you cry out to him tonight? And pray right where you're sitting, Jesus, I come to you and I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I pray that that Jesus, that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for forgiving me and I believe you rose from the grave. You're alive and knocking on the door of my heart and I now open my heart to you for you to sit upon the throne of my life. And I thank you for loving me and dying for me. I thank you for saving me. And now help me to live for you in my life. The trust not only in my salvation with you, but my whole life and everything that I face. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer, when I conclude the service here in just a minute, would you come up and just tell me that you've made that decision for Christ or calling if you're listening on live stream. But for all of us, may we go deep in the things of the Lord and look to you in everything. Continue to cry out to you. So Lord, we thank you. Lord, we just ask that you would just help us to each and every day just be ones looking to you. So Father, we thank you for this time. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.